Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm very happy to have my three roundtable guests of Eric Helms, Mena Henselmans, and Mike Isratel, and they're all great to be here as well. And we've just been talking off air how they all just produce cookie cutter programs and don't individualize. Um, but this obviously is not the case, and individualization for hypertrophy is actually quite important, I feel, and for bodybuilders, and I think just for yourself in general, um, because a lot of people talk about, oh, this person swears by this, so it must work for everyone, or that the science says this, so again, it must work for everyone. And I think as people are becoming more aware of science, we're now becoming more aware of also the fact that there's a bell curve, there's people at one end, there's people at the other end, and there's people in the middle. And so I wanted to talk to each of these guys about individualization and why it's such an important thing and how to actually, and how they apply it to their own clients. So I think first of all, it's important to talk about the different aspects of individualization or the different things that could impact it. So um, environment and genetics. And I know we've spoken about genetics before with Mike, and uh, Greg Nichols, and I don't know if, Mike, you want to talk about the genetic elements that might influence kind of why someone might be a bit different and um, that impacting things. Yeah, totally, sure. So, um, you know, genetics are a big deal, and the research directly on the genetic uh, relationships between muscle growth and variety of other training variables and lifestyle variables uh, isn't vast, but I will tell you that the research on the genetic effects on uh, other variables that we would usually be inclined to consider as much more environmental is, is, is vast and highly impressive. So for example, uh, general intelligence is uh, something like 30% heritable, so genetics is 30% responsible when children are very young. Uh, when they become adolescents, it's something like 50% heritable. And when something, uh, you know, in adulthood, especially mid-adulthood, intellectual prime, um, uh, genetics predicts intelligence with, uh, with uh, heritabilities of about 0.8 to 0.9, which is really obscene when you think about it. But what that really means is that as you grow into the person you are supposed to be as an adult genetically, uh, variations that you had away from the mean as a kid tend to stabilize and you sort of become who you were supposed to be in some sense. Uh, so if you were like a really gifted kid, but your parents weren't so gifted, yeah, there's a pretty decent chance you're not going to be super gifted uh, when you're an adult. If you were really slow to catch on as a kid and uh, you, uh, your parents are both super sharp, uh, there's a pretty decent chance that you actually will get sharper as you get older, uh, more so than age alone would predict, and you start to catch on a bit faster and eventually sort of rise to the expectation. These are all averages. But just to say, point that out, if something so obviously sociologically related and measured is in, as intelligence can be so heritable, you know, where does that leave something like muscle growth, which is a much more straightforward physiological process? The answer is very, very heritable. And that does not mean that uh, environment doesn't matter because then nobody would train with weights. You would just be or whatever muscularity you were, as Lenneke seems to think. Anyway, I'm just <laughs> sorry. I'm having a stroke again. So um, in any case, you know, a, a, the degree to which you respond to a weight training program, for example, for hypertrophy is considerably 
highly genetically dependent. And uh, the degree with which you recover, the speed with which you recover is highly genetically dependent. Um, but the body shape you end up having and thus the uh, kinds of exercises you prefer slash the ones that tend to hurt you a little bit more is very genetically dependent. Um, so there's, a, you know, muscle insertion points uh, and, and things like that. Muscle shapes are also super genetically dependent. So uh, a lot of training ends up being figuring out by sort of more trial and error than anything, maybe some logic as well, what your genotype is and fitting the right kind of training to that. So just a really quick example, and I'll throw it to the other guys. If you tend to be somebody that is more fast twitch dominant on average, right, average muscularity, um, and you tend to just have not the greatest recoverability genetics, then you will soon find out that very high volume training is just not for you. And you will eventually settle into an average of a lower volume training and making sure you stay on top of your recovery like crazy. On the other hand, if somebody that's more slow twitch dominant on average and also has a lot of really good recoverability, they're going to probably find their best growth with training volumes that look like death to everybody else and they can get away with not getting super crazy sleep or tons of meals and still come in and hammer the weight. So for folks like that, advice like you got to fucking suffer, brother, and put in the work is going to just resound with them much more where the other folks are going to discover more of a minimalist approach to training. And that's going to resound with them. And just really quick, a lot of times when you see people debate on social media about like, you know, man, I tried German volume training. It sucks. And it's really stupid. And someone else will, like, well, I got great results from it. A lot of that's just genetics, and there's really no one program that works the best, but there's a sliding scale on volume, frequency, intensity, and all that, and you've got to find kind of the areas in which you benefit the most, and uh, and everyone else does something different. That's okay, because you're going to – you can either figure out what you're doing and or bang your head against the wall doing some other shit that works better for other people. No, definitely, and I think I think everyone can relate to that in that they can maybe they don't they maybe have trained with a training partner before and maybe they haven't seen as good results as them and or on a certain progress they haven't progressed at the same rate as them. Uh, I don't know if men or you've had many experiences with some of your clients where you have maybe found that you'd had to program quite differently for them and how you came across that discovery in terms of like practical application. Um, if you've ever had, I guess a, a lot of people listening to this who maybe haven't had coaches um, might just fall into programs and just keep going thinking that that's kind of quote unquote optimal for them. And I know a big part of your training is to try and find that optimal rate of development for the person, um, how you go about discovering that for the person. Mm -hmm. um, very, very objectively. Uh, first though, because um, I think it's good to, uh, um, Mike, do you know if there's actually research on the heritability factor of muscular potential? Probably really hard to do. Yeah, um, so um, so some of the research that uh, was originally done in the Minnesota Twin Studies uh, was on uh, strength and muscularity, but those are, those are the roughest measures you could imagine. Uh, sample sizes are really big, but uh, it's not something that you would consider sports science research. It's like what a psychologist would, how a psychologist would approach measuring physical qualities. Uh, so they think there's some other stuff they've done with particular genotypes, but that, that's not exactly a holistic approach to, you know, they'll, they'll test various genes and be like, oh, these are predictive of muscle growth, but that's a, that's a pin in the haystack sort of approach. I'm, I'm not familiar with any really good quality, uh, high sample size review of the, like just pure heritability studies in, in muscular responses. 
Yeah, also, no, me neither. Just to, to tack this on, uh, I, I even think that when you do see those core studies that Mike might be alluding to, they're always looking at baseline. Uh, so just how much muscularity and strength do you have, which actually doesn't seem to relate at all to how much someone can grow. Um, the, the percentage change they can make is actually not related to their their initial starting line. So looking jacked without lifting doesn't necessarily mean you're going to look way more jacked if you start lifting weights, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, that's actually exactly what I was I was going to say. Because if you Still have on the research, yeah, on the irritability factors, what you need is you need to look at a sample size of people who have reached their genetic potential, which is very hard to you know first determine and then second even if you could determine it find those individuals and enough of them so uh, but as a reference though uh, we do have research on there couldn't we just take anyone on instagram who's getting claimed as a fake natty and like like that's pretty much it right there right yeah just <laughs> kidding but um, if we um, look at research on heritability factor of strength there was a really good uh, review on that from a few years ago and it was 0.5 which means um, strength, hand grip strength, I think they used, which I, in my experience is actually a pretty good proxy. If, if there's such a thing as like a strength measure you could do in an untrained individual and test, are these guys going to make it in powerlifting? Hand grip strength would be pretty good, I would say, um, insofar as you could tell anything, you know, based on uh, their untrained individual. Uh, and it was 0.5, so that's 0.5 is actually the average in everything, sort of, in research and heritability factors, which is like, you know, it's, it's environmental, it's genetic. Uh, and that estimate would go down considerably if we factor in that it's 0.5 for the baseline, and then we also have all room for strength development with strength training. So uh, in that light, it would actually seem that the heritability factor of strength, and if we, for the sake of argument, assume that strength and muscle growth have the same heritability, probably muscle growth um, might be a bit more determined genetically than strength, because you also have the neural factors that are quite adaptive compared to muscle tissue. But um, let's say for our sake of argument, it's the same. It would be below 0.5, which would mean that, you know, compared to everything else in life that um, has a genetic component, uh, your personality, um, whatever, um, it's actually not that uh, strongly genetically determined. So not, not as strongly as IQ, for example. So in that, in that respect, I think um, it's not too, uh, um, you know, I don't want to be too pessimistic about it, but uh, genetics obviously do uh, matter a lot. Um, to the original question, um, have I coached individuals that really responded very differently um, to the original program? It's definitely not um, like every individual needs a completely different approach. I think the program um, that I start with, and I, you know, I try to individualize it based on what I know, their genetic indicators, I look at their frame size, how advanced they are, that's a really big one. If they're male, female, that's another really big one. Age, of course they're 50 plus um, or younger uh, but usually it's it's within the ballpark so it's it's pretty rare that you have an individual and you would get a program like that that's you know supposed to be optimal given what we know of the individual and they end up completely um, or reacting to something completely different but it's definitely the case that um, some individuals in particular need a lot of, of tweaking and um, uh, basically, I think there, there are two really cool studies on this. Uh, they're actually pretty amazing, uh, really, if you ask me. There's Beaven et al. from 2008, and they looked at a bunch of rugby players, and then they put them on four different programs, 
which were five sets of 15, four sets of 10, three sets of five, and three sets of five with like low intensity. So it was like pure power, traditional power, strength, endurance, hypertrophy workouts, those four. And they first looked with a test workout, which one of those produced the highest salivary testosterone level. So they put a stick in their mouth, looked at their testosterone level, and um, saw which one of those test workouts they respond best to based on their testosterone response. And then they classified them into either the best program or the worst program. So they saw, okay, this guy actually gets like usually insanely masculine from a power workout and uh, responds really, really crappily, um, instantly grows man boobs to uh, the endurance workout. And they actually had them do those programs. And unfortunately, they didn't measure muscle growth, but they did measure body weight and uh, strength. And it was a radical difference in how they responded. So some people actually basically maintained. Some people even seemed to lose uh, gains on the, the worst program. And on the best program, they made great development. So that's, um, I think, you know, the, the, the measure of salivary testosterone has been contested in a lot of research. But um, it's, it's very interesting that you get such a difference in response. And based on at least one of the, a measure like that, like salivary testosterone, you can get classify people into responding very differently to different programs. So there is definitely merit to individualization. Um, the other study um, is, actually I think it's older, I think it's 2003, maybe 13, Coaglu et al, or however you pronounce it. They looked at ACE gene and um, then had the different individuals based on their ACE gene, like uh, II or DD, basically makes you more like it corresponds a lot to fast switch, slow switch in terms of genotype. So II is like super endurance oriented. And they actually found that the people with the II gene that are supposedly endurance oriented actually seem to respond better to higher reps and more volume. Whereas the people with the DD phenotype, where it's supposed to be like fast switch, responded better to, or did not respond better to the higher volume and did respond better to the higher intensity. So that corresponds with um, uh, at least anecdotally, if you look at the a book I really like about this, is the sports gene. And uh, he goes over like a, a lot of research on, uh, or anecdotes, is it's mostly a compilation of anecdotes, um, of high-level sprinters. And they actually test the fiber types of these guys. And they indeed found that like recovery capacity was also uh, strongly limited to fiber type. So, you know, these are outliers. Because if you're a high-level sprinter, then you're probably like super fast switch, and most people do not vary that much in muscle fiber type at all. But um, uh, the general point is that it definitely matters, and there there are factors that can predict um, whether we respond better to higher volume, lower volume, maybe even higher reps, lower reps. But volume is probably uh, one of the, the key ones. Um, and then the strategy for us as coaches, the difficulty is finding out. What predicts uh, if a certain individual will respond well to high volume or low volume? So uh, one thing that the only thing I'm, or one of the few things I'm pretty confident about in that it says something is work capacity. So if I look at my clients and I see that they have really good work capacity, which means their reps go like eight, eight, seven, seven, in spite of me saying, okay, train to failure or one rep to failure. Um, and I know that they're actually training hard because, you know, that's uh, another factor you need to um, uh, take into account as a coach. And then um, usually they can handle more volume. And you really see that women have higher work capacity and can handle more volume as well. 
compared to men. Whereas if you see someone reps, you're like mine, they go like 12, 6, 3, if I squat, balls out, then um, doesn't really respond well to adding in more volume. And it makes sense if you just look at, even if it's maybe the only reason it matters is because it's just the total volume matters for growth. And if I do a fourth set of squats in a workout, I'm going to be doing two extra reps. Well, that's that's a pretty trivial increase in volume. So it might be just just that is the reason I don't respond to it because I don't really add much volume if I do another set. No, I really, I'm glad you brought in the area of how do we as trainees or as coaches think about these things because obviously we can't test someone's testosterone in their kind of in their saliva and things like this so it's nice that you've kind of got that oh how do they do across sets and when i think about this and i think about mike's principles of like maximum recoverable volume and working through this i know that's one of the things you take into consideration is like performance across sets if you're performing well you're feeling well recovered then potentially you can do more volume to work towards that is that kind of the right sort of thing mike yeah. So what Menno is looking at is intra-session performance. Um, I think that is potentially a very, very brilliant way to go about things. I, I tend to look at uh, session to session decrements in performance. If you do a certain volume and then you increase the volume a little bit like you normally would next week and you're hunky-dory and still hitting all predicted reps and sets, then you're good to go. If you shit the bed, eh, you might be just a chance event. might be that you're doing too much. If you consider the, the real sort of way to go about figuring out how much you can tolerate and, and like Eric has fucked me in the ass for, it doesn't mean you need to train there all the time. Uh, it's uh, the real way to figure that out is if you consistently hit a wall at a certain amount of work, mesocycle after mesocycle, then they just it's probably in excess of your general ability recovered. It's probably a dumb idea to keep doing that. You know, like uh, people get, a, you know, like, uh, man, I'm sure you guys have better stories than me about this. But you guys ever have people being like, yeah, man, I tried Smolov again and it fucking crushed me again. Like, you dumb motherfucker. Why are you trying that shit for the fifth time? Like, do you think something magical is going to happen? Uh, yes. and, and it just, <laughs> at some point it just works and they're like, oh, sweet. Yeah. So, so it's one of those, like, if you know, if, if you keep track of your training numbers, you really do know when you're under-recovered. And that comes down to a lot of honesty. Um, one quick thing that I have to point out um, in response to Menno's genetics uh, stuff, very, very right on. I will say that the pertinent question is not the genetic variation between people who do not train or have yet to train and people who are training. The real big question is given that you give folks a generally decent hard training program, what is then going to be the influence of every other variable uh, versus their genetics? Um, I tend to find in my experience that if you give people a decent program, uh, you you will see that genetics accounts for much of the rest of the variation response, granted that they also consume adequate food. So basically, if someone comes to me and says, look, I've been doing this program like five by five or some shit like that with a bit of assistance work, I'm eating my calories and you know, they're not bullshitting you or whatever. You know, I'm eating calories, I'm eating protein and I'm just not getting amazing results man, I just got to be honest, you probably don't have amazing genetics and the Mr. Olympia is not for you. All the folks that have gotten enormous are the kids kinds of been like, so I did five by five for six months and ate food and I gained 40 kilos of muscle and now I can't walk or some shit like Chad Wesley Smith. 
gained like 40 kilos during high school just lifting and eating. And you're like, what? Like, just boom, it just happened. And, and I, I tend to find that, uh, you know, uh, especially at the extremes, and I'd love to get you guys' input on this, uh, folks that are really super hard gainers, even though the nutrition and training is pretty good, I just don't think there's a, a big thing over the rainbow for those folks. Like, if it's just one thing fucking clicks, they're just going to have these massive gains. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? No, I think if you click everything into place, they can make gains. That's that's been my experience. Like they Games become period, non, some kind of non responder, but that's about as good as it might get for people who really, really have a bad card dealt. So Yeah. Man, what do you think? I usually say like if you put someone on what supposedly is a scientific optimal program, then um, I often use the rule of thumb, this will provide at least eighty percent of your results for eighty percent of individuals. So it's like double double Pareto. And um because you know there there will be some outliers and there will be a lot of people where you can fine tune, but um, there are also a lot of people where it will just be around optimal. Perfect. And I think uh, I want to definitely talk about. Obviously, we talked a lot about genetics. I'd love to talk about environment. And I know Eric, you guys on the Three D MJ podcast, you've talked about kind of case studies with clients and things and how much the environment can impact things. And I'd love to get your kind of experience in where you've seen, like, I don't know, you might have had some clients who are an online coach themselves and they have lots of control of their time versus maybe someone is like a dad and works a nine to five job and the impact that makes on kind of having to individualize on that basis. That's a really good point. Yeah. So Steve, I think um, it's, it's really important to point out that uh, individualization is not the same thing as genetics, not even close, because like these guys said, you can't do a genetic test with your clients, at least yet. Um, and in our in our day to day practice, I would say the the things that we are aware of and have more ability to change are environmental. And they do have large impacts on on performance. Uh, you know, there's some good research out there from a lot of angles on this. There's some work by uh, Bartholomew that looks at college students and finds that uh, the more negative life experiences uh, they have or, or stressful events that they report, uh, you see a pretty predictable decrease in their strength gains. Um, getting less sleep tends to predict poor, poor gains in the gym, uh, poor nutrition, like all, all the stuff that we focus on as trainers, it's our job, change someone's environment, help them shift their perspective, um, manipulate their training program and fit it to their lifestyle um, is, is pretty much the, the, the bread and butter of what we do on a day-to-day basis. And I think uh, without going too far into that, because that could be, I mean, that, that's like most of what personal training is, if you think about it. Um, I think it's just really important to emphasize that. Um, and there are factors that um, you can can't control an environment, uh, depending on the individual. They might be in a, a situation in their lives where they have to work uh, at times that are suboptimal for their circadian rhythm or suboptimal for their eating schedule uh, or suboptimal for tracking nutrition. Like I've had clients who are tr- literally traveling salesmen uh, and they have to work out in a different gym than the, the last time they, they were here, like on a regular basis. Uh, so some of the tools that are really useful in that um, in those situations are a lot of the auto-regula- auto-regulatory tools that um, I've tried to bring to light and others have as well. Having flexible training templates. Actually, Menno would be great to talk about this because he's essentially a, a traveling fitness person. Um, 
you know, like having flexible templates uh, using RPE, uh, having a flexible mode of selecting exercises, um, and but still having some way to take pretty rigorous notes so you can see where you were last time you were able to do something. Um, focusing on, on free weights, since you've pretty much always got access to dumbbells and barbells. Um, uh, and having a good understanding of uh, macronutrition and having the skill and ability to, to make a lot of things fit. You know, this is where if it fits your macros becomes very useful because you may not have control over uh, the type of food you're going to have access to. So you got to get pretty creative. Uh, so a lot of that is giving clients tools to be more autonomous, um, which takes more time, but also has pays off much bigger dividends. Um, the clients who have really engaged me with that and who have um, allowed me to take a very strong mentorship role and teach them how to be flexible and learn these tools, use RPE, um, and have a very chaotic life, um, they tend to be really, really good once their life does settle down. And they've got all these tools that allow them to take a lot more control over their, their outcomes. Uh, so I think... Um, Man, there, there, there's so many rabbit holes we could go down, but I would say just acknowledging the fact that many of the things outside of the gym and outside of the kitchen can have bigger impacts in aggregate on your outcomes than the things you do in the gym and the kitchen, believe it or not, sometimes, um, is important because then you don't become so siloed in what you focus on. And it's not all just about, you know, ticking my boxes for, for nutrition training, which I think is, is important to, to conceptualize. Yeah, yeah just to go a minute. Yeah, to, uh, like Eric said, sleep. Sleep is so important, it's ridiculous. There's a, there was a recent study that I posted on Facebook. I actually emailed the authors to check if the data were legit because it just seemed absurd. They found that when people uh, went on a diet, a weight loss diet, they were, they were untrained. Uh, but, you know, you'd expect similar results in trained individuals ratio-wise. And they had them sleep one hour less during the midweek, but they actually allowed them to catch up during the weekend as much as they wanted. So they had a limited sleep during the weekend. And if you think about this, this is like most people, right? You suffer one hour of sleep deprivation during the midweek and you catch up as much as you can during the weekend. That resulted in the average ratio of lean to fat mass change going from 80-20 to 20-80. So... They went from losing only 20% of lean mass, which is normal. It's like, that's like the average in literature, I think, to losing 80% lean. That's, that's just insane. And it was one hour difference. And, um, you know, if that was just one study, that would be like, I don't know about that. And I, I, I generally don't know about that difference. But um, a previous study had actually found that sleeping 5.5 hours compared to 8 hours resulted in more over 50% less fat loss and over 50% more muscle loss over the course of a weight loss diet, which is also huge. So that's like, I think a quote by Greg Knuckles is really, really apt here. He said at the Epic Fitness Summit, um, which was years ago, but he said most people have this idea in their head about um, basically um, Eric's uh, idea of a pyramid of uh, importance. And most people have this idea that at the top you have, you know, training and nutrition and whatever, and there's debates, is diet more important than training, whatnot. Supplements are probably somewhere a bit below that. And then way at the bottom is, you know, sleep and stress and stuff like, you know, 
it's important, but it's not really important, right, guys? So you actually, the other way around. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, exactly. That's what Greg said. So if you have that that concept, what most people have in reality, it's like you should probably turn that upside down. So it's actually that factors like sleep and stuff. Of course, training volume, energy balance, those matter enormously. But when you come, when it comes to fine tuning, then sleep is probably more important than all of those things. Sleep is more on the level of energy balance, protein intake, and training volume than the fine tuning of um, uh, training variables. It's, it's huge. Uh, oh, go on, Mike. Yeah, I, I would second that. Um, Dr. James Hoffman from RP, sort of sleep expert and uh, head author of the recovery book. And um, every time we do a seminar, he hammers this as much as he can. You kind of get this response from most audiences like, yeah, I know, I don't sleep enough. <laughs> Oh, well, so what about, like, exactly what reps should I do? Sets of 11 or sets of 12? I was like, you dumb asshole. No. <laughs> like, you miss an hour or two of sleep chronically. Like, you can forget about reps altogether. And from, from experience with clients, I must have caught on to this pretty early. I didn't know any of the theoretical stuff behind it. But, like, I used to train a bunch of, like, CEOs and shit in Manhattan and New York. And um, nothing happened to these people like training was good. Their diets supposedly were diets and just we couldn't make any fucking progress. My wife is a doctor. And when she's on the residency rotations that are really nuts on sleep, she's a competitive power lifter. Nothing goes well. Like we slow the rate of her decline. That's all we can do. And then when she starts sleeping again, it's like she's summoning like the earth goddess or some shit. She just fucking reps out everything. And you're like, oh, my God, look at all these PRs. It, it, people, I think, sometimes just aren't really willing to look at their sleep as a as a not a negotiable, but as a as a huge priority. Like, uh, sorry to get on a high horse here, but I will straight up leave whatever event I'm at to get my sleep. Sleep straight up non negotiable for me. Like, uh, you know, like at like fitness summits and stuff like that. People will be like, "Let's go out," and I'm like, "Oh, yep, nope, go fuck yourselves. I'm gonna go sleep." Uh, it, that's it. Yeah. I'm uh, that big of a dick, but it's one of those things. Like it's, it's not even like people are like, Oh, it's okay. You'll sleep later. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like that's how important sleep is. I I'm not getting five hours. It's just out of the question. Like minimum eight. That's it. I sleep usually eight to 10 hours a night. Uh, the most boring fucking life in the entire world. Uh, I missed the fireworks yesterday, 4th of July. Cause I went to sleep before they, they started. Uh, I gotta get gains, bro. I had a fucking unbelievable workout today though. And you know, weigh 260 pounds, so all as well, I guess. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's one of those things where people say sleep's important, sleep's important. And it's almost, it almost sounds pedantic sometimes like, oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah, sleep. It's not, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's the biggest fucking deal in the world. Here, sorry, real quick while I'm ranting, last little example. There's a bodybuilder who I follow on Instagram. This is a pro bodybuilder. He's really jacked. And he's like, posted an Instagram picture of him, like making his food at like two in the morning. He's like going to make food gonna you know check some client emails gonna be up again at 6 a.m to train clients for 12 hours and then i train in the evenings i'm on the way up baby no time for sleep i gotta do what it takes to be the best sometimes you gotta trade it off and i'm just like oh my god like that is just, it's, a, it's the craziest thing you could ever imagine somebody saying and it, it, he just he's totally not in the know he's just gonna find out the hard way i guess yeah 
I think I, mean, it's, oh, I was just going to say, I think it's really important that you guys have brought this up because what we've kind of come to is a discussion of, yes, there's many genetic variables. You can't have a great test for that. We have some great baseline training programs, which you can auto-regulate towards finding what works for you. But there's so many people who are quick to blame their training program when they haven't got things like sleep in place, they haven't got their nutrition in place. And it's so frustrating as a coach to see that with a client and be like, I can't make you sleep. Um, and it's good for the listeners to hear that if they are struggling with their program, have a serious talk to yourself, are you getting everything else that you need to in place? Um, but yeah, go ahead, Menno, I know you had something to say. Yeah, on, on that note, I um, you know I push my clients pretty hard. Most people that come to me, like I, I coach people that are very serious. So uh, quite a lot of my clients, uh, uh, worry at some point if they're overtraining or not, and um, for one, if they're get, if they're making good progress, you're not overtraining. But the first thing I always ask, which usually it's not overtraining, it's not the results that they're worried about, it's fatigue. And always the first thing I ask is, how much are you sleeping? Because many people think, oh, I'm fatigued because I did four sets of biceps work instead of three sets that I did the weeks before. Now I'm fatigued instead of well, you didn't sleep good that night. So that's why you're fatigued. And sleep deprivation kind of makes you tired. So it's, it's huge. For, for me, the turning point was actually my father. Because um, I had insomnia, really, really bad insomnia throughout adolescence. And at some point, my father said, if you put an ounce of dedication that you put into your training and diet, into properly organizing your sleep, into actually doing that, you would not have insomnia anymore. And that really hit home with me. And um, since then, basically, I've been good. And I've uh, got my biorhythm as artificial as uh, possible, basically. So I use melatonin, light therapy, um, because I, I do have a sleep disorder. But if I do all that, then it's good. I sleep nine hours a night. I'm kind of like Mike. I don't sacrifice sleep for anything. Some international flights, it's inevitable. But um, that's that's pretty much it. Anything else, um, we'll have to get out of the way for sleep. So um, it's it's not that some things are not worth it. It's just that you're a completely different person. Speaking from vast experience as being chronically sleep deprived, it's like it's literally like you're a different person if you're well rested versus chronically sleep deprived. I don't know if, um, I know Eric, you muted Mike. I don't know if Mike's become unmuted. Oh, we, he keeps I can, I can toggle it. It's <laughs> fucking rude though. It says, Eric muted Mike. I'm like, motherfucker, I guess I talked for too long. <laughs> no, I was hearing, did you guys hear that like Indian music playing? Yeah. Really That's not for me. Why the fuck did you guess that it's for me? <laughs> I was just That's muting every person trying to see if I could make it go away. And then I real I did the first person and I couldn't figure out how to undo it. So <laughs> it's, it's the prayers. I live next to a mosque. Ah, that was going to be my guess. Yeah. Yep. I'm in Istanbul, so it's kind of impossible not to have the prayers like five times a day. Wow. Hey, Menno, what's it like to see a man reading a newspaper at a, at a cafe in Marrakesh and then come up to him and just like from the side right here, like silence pistol, shoot him three times and then walk off like nothing ever happened. <laughs> Being that you're an international spy, I imagine that's a daily occurrence for you. Pretty much, yeah. Sweet. <laughs> Depends on what newspaper they're reading. 
<laughs> if it's like the journal Science, you're like, oh, all right, jeez, this is a good guy. You guys, guys are like Oz quarterly. <laughs> Something I did want to um, actually address is probably with uh, Eric. I think you'd be someone really good to talk about this. Is that I think there's a lot of people that seek optimal and they want that optimal thing. And I know you've spoken a lot about this. Um, do you have clients who kind of want optimal and you kind of have to be like, like we can't like you can only do what you can do and they haven't got these things outlined. Maybe they can't do the frequency that they potentially would provide them better gains, but they just can't actually do it within their lifestyle. And how do you address that with them? And are they then not getting results because they can't be quote unquote optimal or is it still like they can still get to where they want to go? Yeah, the the optimal conversation is one I have with most uh, neurotic late teen, early 20 uh, lifters, uh, at least once a week, who are my clients. Um, and that normally starts off with just kind of me asking them questions about like, basic logic, like, okay, so what's your schedule? And what can you do? And then they outline that. And then I go, now, what do you want to do? And then when there's like a basic mismatch, I go, so can we focus on what we, what we can do? instead of kind of always looking at, at the kind of the, uh, the other side of the fence, the whole grass is greener thing. A lot of the times um, I try to trace it back to what, what's their motivation for, for wanting optimal. And it's like, we all have the baseline motivation of, I want to get the best progress I can. Like that's, no one's going to disagree with that. You don't sit down, you know, with, with a bunch of people who are, who want to be competitive bodybuilders and powerlifters and they go, actually, I'm looking for average gains. Please don't, don't, don't make me get any stronger or bigger faster than that. No one's like that. It's more when you get someone who is super, super like I want optimal, I want optimal. It's very much this fear-based uh, neurotic kind of constant searching and fear that they're doing something wrong or that if they start uh, and, and they don't do it right, there'll be some problem. Um, like a fear of missing out. It, it very much seems uh, like it's consistent kind of neurotic pattern to me that I run into. Um, where someone, yeah, I'll even see it on social media. Sometimes I'll be asked for like the same question in different ways. They're trying to get me to say exactly what they want for like two months. Uh, and I'm the whole time I'm thinking, what are you doing in the gym right now during these two months where you're trying to run down exactly how you should deload, you know, because like, are you just not training or, or is it just like, are you in the gym? Like, this is a waste of time. Cause I don't have the optimal deload from Helms. Like, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, so a lot of times that discussion is just getting them to understand that logically you can only do what you can do and optimal is kind of this pie in the sky idea, but nothing exists outside of what is actually going to happen in the practical realm. Um, so I always start from what can we do and then I optimize that, uh, which I think is a better way to do it. Uh, and depending on the individual, the freedom they have in their life, um, their commitment and their goals um, and what makes sense in the long run, uh, the, the proximity between what's practical and what's optimal can get closer uh, because they are willing to make changes to their lifestyle that will support more of what we think might be optimal. Um, I think a, a good savvy coach um, is someone who can help a client realize that sometimes the alterations they're making in their life to be optimal in the short run might have a cost that could lead them to being uh, burned out in the long run. Uh, so, for example, if if a competitor um, is quite good 
at the pro level um, and has a chance to place on the podium, uh, let's say, uh, at WMBF World or something like that, and therefore wants to compete every year to get as many, you know, to get as much out of the career as possible. Um, that could be seen as that's what's optimal. You know, I'm, I'm getting, you know, top three at Worlds. I need to be back on stage next year so I can defend that title or, or win that title if I'm in second or what have you. But they might not actually be able to sustain that uh, because of demands of prep and then the recovery period. Uh, and they might not actually be able to progress because they don't have a long enough off season. So it's one of those things that's like, look, Here's reality. If you want to make significant enough physique changes, we need to take a couple of years off. That does mean missing out on placing, you know, second or third for a couple of years, but it might result in you placing first in the long run. So a lot of the times it's discussion, not only of just practicality versus optimality, but also about uh, career versus immediate goals uh, and trying to get them to line up a little better. Um, and this is something that gets progressively easier to a progressively easier com- conversation to have as someone get, gains more experience because they also gain perspective. Um, but it is a difficult conversation to have with, say, someone who is uh, a talented lifter who is young. O- o- overall, I think the um, that's where coaching comes in, uh, or or just taking a step back if you're working with yourself. And looking realistically at like, okay, what are my resources and what can I do with them versus externally what's supposedly optimal. And then I'm going to do that. Wait, I can't do that. And then just focus on that all over and over and over and over again. Um, So I think uh, I think it's also important to know that uh, optimal is a moving target constantly. It's going to be with underneath the conditions at where you are at in your life. Um, like if you're injured, this is this is one that's really obvious. People who train through injury and do things they they that will make their injury worse or prolong recovery, they're trying to do something that's optimal because they're they're denying reality and making the situation worse for themselves. I think that's a very obvious example, but there's microcosms of that like everywhere. Um, you know, people don't often don't realize that they're sacrificing something for something else. Like the example that that Mike gave. Um, I think when people wake up in the middle of the night to get a protein serving, I think that's probably not a trade-off that's worth it, uh, considering the importance we see of sleep and the meh we see of protein timing. Um, you know, so so stuff like that I think is where people often get hung up, and that's why I often like my career is kind of defined by giving people priorities and hierarchies so that they don't sacrifice one thing for another because that's super, super common. It's kind of like, you know, you you, re, you have to remember that when you gamble on something that might be a could be better, um, that might actually be a gamble. You might actually lose out because it costs something else. So it's just thinking of second and third order effects. It's thinking about practical. It's thinking about long term. So it's almost completely helping someone shift their mindset so that they can get a better perspective on what makes sense for them to be doing. And now I'm done. Cool. Uh, I do actually have, if Menno didn't have anything there, I, I thought he did, but um, I did have something I wanted to get your guys' opinions on, actually. And it's related to what you were just talking about there, Eric. And I think because of the day and age where we have, I mean, you guys on a podcast regularly giving out amazing information, people who are savvy and they know what they're doing, they kind of know how to train. They know the basics of training nutrition. There's your eBooks out there. There's amazing resources now. Do you think there's maybe a case, I don't know if you've seen it at all within the fitness realm, and I guess it's something that has 
been apparent all the time really where there are maybe coaches or people who are kind of preying upon those neurotic people searching optimization when you can't really get it and kind of suggesting that you can do things with certain supplements or certain regimes that sell like become very sexy and it kind of takes people's eyes off the prize i don't know if you've seen that um i think i've noticed it with maybe people suggesting that some science is maybe stronger than what it is and well, i guess we can say with I don't know, someone like Charles Poliquin with genetic testing or something he might be doing. But I think it's even delving into other areas. I don't know if any of you have any experience with that or any thoughts. I've never seen that in the fitness industry before in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no deceptive <laughs> marketing and people don't get preyed upon at all. So, disagree. <laughs> Steve, can you, can you feel that yet? Oh, oh, control, enter. Can you feel that now? I've just hacked your biology through your headphones. Steve. <laughs> your muscles should be trivialing in size. Isn't that how biohacking works? Like if you're interfaced with a computer. <laughs> so I definitely, uh, I do that, but that's real. So it's not a ripoff. Mano? Yeah, he doesn't have the right USB port, I don't think. Fuck. You, you, need, you need the penis shaped one. No, I'm, I'm the worst person to ask this question. I don't read or watch anything that doesn't have scientific references. <laughs> so I have no idea what other coaches are doing other than basically you guys, Ellen, Brad, Greg. I think sometimes um, they, they do. So no, I just realized no one answered your question seriously. No, I mean, so yeah. It's fine. I, I'm, I'm going to help you. Please. I'm going to help. I'm, I got you. I got you. So, yes, there is a huge amount of preying on. Uh, on the, on the hope for optimal and, and also e even understanding that individual differences exist. So you get different kinds of nonsense in the fitness industry. Sometimes you get the whole, like the tribalism, like our solution is for everyone. That one's very easy to debunk by saying, nah, everyone's different. And I think most people intuitively get that unless they like hook, line and sinker. I'm a true believer of X diet, X training system, which they're out there, but that's, it's a much easier thing to combat. The more insidious stuff is when it, when someone says, hey, you're a special snowflake, the, the reason you haven't made any progress is because you don't know this one cool trick that I do. Doctors hate me. Come to me. Give me all your money. I think that works on people more often because it preys on their individual frustration and their feeling that they're, that, that they're not part of a group. Like they may have tried keto or paleo or CrossFit or uh, not, not that those are the only cults out there and I don't want to make them sound bad. You can do those things more intelligently than the average. Um, or, or even you, 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 pro, you, you've bought into like the mainstream, uh, kind of like 3DMJ stuff. Like I do 10 sets twice per week. I, I follow the basic minute analytic guidelines. I haven't made progress. Now you, you can, you can also be victim to, um, you know, someone who, who is taking that sales tactic. So I think that is very common, Steve. And I think it's a harder one to combat. Um, and typically what you have to look for is the language that's being used. Um, if it is, if it is basically giving you outcomes that are, they can't explain how they get them, um, or that can't be explained by any way. Like for example, you know, you brought up Poliquin, like his premise is that by measuring the subcutaneous fat at certain locations in your body, I can get, the equivalent of a full hormone panel and that full hormone panel can also dictate uh, what your nutrition and training should be and that you should always buy my supplements. 
Uh, that's the, the one hormonal panel, uh, you know, that's consistent for everyone as they have the, the hormones for buying his supplements, which is kind of interesting. So you have to be looking out for like, you know, superlatives, uh, very salesy language, clickbaity titles, all that stuff. Uh, and that, that's a tougher one to, to arm people against as far as detecting that BS. Um, and it does play on their desire for, for breaking a plateau, which I think is really common. Um, a lot of the times this, this also works on people who are not quite yet committed to fitness and they're hoping for some shortcut. Um, so they're not at that place where they're at the stage of motivation where they're ready to go all in and, and just say, I want to do whatever it takes. Um, they're kind of going, Oh, is there a, a neat little, this is, this is one cool trick that I, that I, I, I could use that, that is neat for me. It kind of hits them from that angle as well. So yeah, very common. Brilliant, Eric. And I know Mike had something to add to that as well. Yeah, Eric, that last point that there's folks not super tied into the industry yet that are often fall for this kind of stuff. You know, at, um, at RP, we sell a like, shitload of programs and diets to, to, to those exact folks. And uh, we've consistently been uh, running into, from all levels, but especially from those, a desire for hyper-individualization beyond what science can readily supply. Um, we've had talks with potential athletes that were going to work with us. Well, do you guys do individualized plans? We're like, well, of course. They're like, okay, do you consider genetics and blood type? And we're like, oh boy. Because you can't just say no, and then I think you're ignorant. Um, you got to say, and you can't say no because that shit is bullshit. <laughs> Because that's insulting. It's real tough because you got to be like, well, you know, some of that stuff's really cool. And eventually it's going to be super, super relevant. But unfortunately, based on what we've looked at, it's just not there yet. And there's some other stuff we use that's just, just a bit better predicting like your body weight, and activity level, stuff like that uh, versus blood type. Now, it's just oh, it's an awesome idea. It's just not quite there yet. And, that is a really good way to answer that unless they've already been using this shit for a year and a half. And, and, and then they're like, so you're telling me that I've just been wasting my time? Or like, I'm not really saying that so much. Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. So it's tough, man. It's like Eric said, it's tough to compete with someone. You know, we're, we're usually on the side of anti-cookie cutter, but that's an easy side. Uh, if you're on the side of anti-individualization, boy, you look like a fucking cocksucker. Like, oh, Oh yeah, RP, 3DMJ, and and Menno, they got all the answers, huh? You guys don't even need any data about what about me? What about my feelings? We're like, all right, all right, all right. Like we would love to get in, the, you know, on Charles Polkwin's level. It just we don't lie to people. I don't know. It's tough. It's tough. One day, one day we'll advance the level where we can lie to people and get oh, yes, better. Oh yes, that'll be a great day. We're just you know, everybody. We're ruining the industry. So. I followed Charles Polkwin's advice once. I became uh, convinced of his need for, which was a long time ago, by the way, but um, <laughs> the need Six to months. supplement magnesium. And um, I followed his dosage guideline, which is two grams of um, whatever magnesium kind he had. So I had diarrhea for about two weeks. <laughs> I was waiting for that pump line. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> 
And I actually, something to kind of wrap it up a little bit, potentially something that really resonated with me that Eric said on, I can't remember when it might've been an interview individually, but it was about supplements. And I think something that does come out a lot is kind of new supplements and you have like research about supplements and um, something very refreshing. Even I know we, all of you guys will agree with is that kind of, there has to be a lot of evidence before you might suggest someone takes a supplement and even like there could be small amounts of studies coming out and people are like jumping on different supplements because they're potentially providing 1% or whatever it might be of that optimal kind of like pie in the sky. And the thing that rung true of me with that Eric said was there's so little evidence that there could potentially be a load of bad evidence that could potentially come out. And so it's actually could be detrimental in the long run to think, oh, I might be getting this 1%. You actually might be getting this detriment of whatever percent we don't even know about yet. So um, I just wanted to bring that up because I see a lot of people, um, probably listeners of the podcast, who get very kind of interested. I think one of the supplements out at the moment is like CBD oil. Um, I'm sure all of you have seen it recently. Yeah, there's actually a very rational reason to be more skeptical of scientific research about supplements than other realms because you know if there's one study about a certain training technique and it's promising and there's no reason to believe it it's harmful then it's you know it's something to consider because i think a lot of people underestimate the strength of a proper scientific study um because it's it's you know probability wise it's actually the type the chance of a type one error is really small and it's usually lack of statistical power no findings that is that are a common problem in exercise science. So a lot of stuff finds that things don't matter where in reality they do matter, but they are overshadowed by the massive genetic variation. And because people don't stick to their diet and don't sleep or whatever, that completely uh, cancels out the effect of that actual training uh, effect. But for supplements, uh, this is basically how it usually works. So people have a new substance, they start trialing it out on rodents and whatnot, and once there's promising research, human trials follow. And if we see promising research, there will be people um, who, uh, from pharmaceutical industry, supplement industry, who will fund and sponsor research about it to see if it actually works. If there is promising research, but there is no follow-up with research that actually shows, hey, longitudinally, you know, three months, we got strength trainees to find out this shit actually works. It's probably because that research has actually been done but not published because that is the most, you know, many people think in terms of publication bias, they think people fraud the data. Uh, and it's not always Wilson style. So usually it's the case that when people um, or supplement industry, they have then the right to not publish because it's, it's actually quite hard to find a scientific researcher and just tell them, okay, you're going to pretend to do this study we're going to just give you the data. You're going to publish that and fuck your reputation up for the rest of your life. And um, we're not going to give you that much money for it, really. Not nearly as much as you would get in salary for being a full-time professor for the rest of your career. But um, this is how it's going to be. So what usually is the case is they, they pay them money to do the study. And then they have the right not to publish that study if the results don't agree with them. So it's very often the case that there is actually research. Um, but it wasn't positive. So for supplements, it wasn't published. So for supplements, you, you need to be very, very, um, basically an extra level of skepticism in terms of uh, the scientific research. Supplements are one area where you don't want to be an early adopter. At, at, at best, if it doesn't work and you're just wasting money, but it could be actually a detrimental effect in some cases. So, yeah, uh, like the, the aspartic acid. Yep. 
that's the example I always like to use. So can you guys can you guys expand on that example? Yeah. So diaspartic acid uh, in two thousand nine, I believe the first study came out. Uh, it was on males not training, um, just taking it, and they saw about a thirty percent increase in testosterone production. Uh, this it was the only males, right. I think they were just just guys. I think they're just dudes. They they might have been on the lower end. I don't I don't think they were infertile. I could be wrong. Um, and the the internet completely jumped all over it, and everybody was putting it. It became a common ingredient in test boosters. Most people I know tried it. Uh, the crazy thing is there's not a single other human study uh, done. It's the only one. And I was like, you know, we should probably just wait a little bit. Uh, then I think. Willoughby came out with a study a few years later, testing it on uh, resistance training males, and they found it didn't increase strength or hypertrophy. And everyone was like, oh, well, you know, we tried and no big deal. And then a few years after that, a study came out where it actually decreased testosterone in the males taking it. So now we don't know. Does it have null effects, positive effects or negative effects? I don't know, but I sure as hell don't want to play a one third gamble on it actually being beneficial, um, especially when the likelihood of it actually resulting in benefits in strength training is, is probably low, even if you do get the change. So uh, that, that, that's the example I like to use. Yeah, and I think there's good rodent data showing it's actually uh, toxic for the testes if you are not hypogonadal. Uh, <laughs> yeah. One so. to avoid, Mike. Nah, my testes are, uh, are out of the equation. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I don't know if any of you have anything more to say on that, but I thought that was a really nice kind of interesting kind of thoughts on individualization. I think some key takeaways would be the thought of kind of starting the baseline with the science and what you guys are suggesting. And like all of you give out, there's ranges within there. You kind of start with the lower end of those, see what's working, what's not. Be aware of your environment. And I think the tools of autoregulation and like the reps and reserve, the RPE, that sort of stuff, the thoughts about kind of progressing volumes via feedback. I think that's all essential information for people to really think about. Um, and obviously sleep was huge and be skeptical of supplements and don't kind of be too drawn towards people who are maybe, yeah, have, have, be very skeptical as always. I think anyone listens to this podcast, just always take a second guess at things, never just take someone's word for it. The only thing I would want to add to our discussion is that um, the genetic side of individual variation um, is not simply uh, within the realm of physiology. I think biomechanics also plays a huge role in individualization. Um, you know, your height, your limb lengths, your, your total body mass. Uh, we've got good data to show that all of those can also influence how you should train. Uh, certain levers are, really don't predispose themselves towards safe, effective, long-term training without injury to certain movements. Um, we've seen in, in some studies we've done that individuals who are uh, very high in body mass and higher in height uh, get less reps at a given percentage of 1RM. Um, and anecdotally, uh, if you talk to most powerlifting coaches who work with a spectrum of athletes across uh, weight classes, you'll see that they have to do different things with volume and frequency um, at uh, the extreme ends of, of that spectrum. So uh, some of it just does come down to not just if we did a little biopsy of your muscle, you know, what does that tell us, but also just the actual structure of your body. And I think that's something to 
uh, that should not be taken lightly. I think we talked about that a fair bit in the uh, exercise selection roundtable. So just something to consider as well. Why I didn't bring it up, Eric? <laughs> no, I'm well, man, That's no. a good point. <laughs> Um, and yeah, definitely people, this, that will come out before this. And, um, yeah, if you haven't heard that, then definitely listen back to it. And I'm, I actually can't remember exactly what was touched on, but I know it did come up and I know you guys all destroyed it. So, um, yeah, brilliant. I want to thank you all for coming on again. I know the listeners are, love these. I absolutely love them. I hope you guys enjoy talking to each other and, uh, I will catch all of you guys and all of the listeners soon.